Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. As you probably have already figured, my name is not Mark Leonard. I'm Ulrike Franke. I am a policy fellow at ECFR based in our London office. And I had the enormous pleasure of chairing a discussion on artificial intelligence at ECFR's annual council meeting, which took place earlier this summer. Now, normally you have to be at the annual council meeting to follow the discussions. But since this year's debate was all digital anyway, we recorded the sessions so that you can now listen to them. The following is a discussion between Marie-Thier Schake, the International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center, and Carlos Muedas, who until recently was the European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation. The two of them talk about artificial intelligence, Europe's AI capabilities, the role of the EU in governing AI, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. talk about artificial intelligence and surveillance and maybe we should start with the why why do we link these two um, because of course you can discuss both AI and surveillance also independently and I think in our discussions we may kind of oscillate between the two topics and not mix them up but just to understand why we, we, we put them together they are of course related and they're related in two ways or two directions if you like first of all AI enables more, greater, better surveillance. Artificial intelligence really isn't a technology as such, but an enabler of other technologies. And surveillance in particular can get supercharged by artificial intelligence. We're talking facial recognition, AI-enabled speech recognition, these kind of things. And as I mentioned, I usually work more on the kind of military defense side of things. But normally when I end my talks, I always say, you know what, I'm actually more scared by AI-enabled surveillance than by the Terminator, because one is something that may never happen and the other is something that's already there and actually pretty scary. But there's also the other direction, which I think is somewhat overlooked sometimes, and that is that in the name of artificial intelligence, surveillance may become more accepted because AI, for the moment at least, is based on a lot of data. You need a lot of data to, to enable AI and machine learning. And this data, of course, needs to be collected somehow. And surveillance is one way to collect data. And so there's a certain danger that surveillance becomes more accepted or indeed reputable because it is for a good cause. And I think there's definitely a parallel here to the surveillance efforts we're currently seeing with regard to the pandemic, because here also, you know, it's all for a good cause. And I think this is something to be very about. Okay, without further ado, we're going to start with, with Carlos, because he can give the kind of EU, the European view from his work on the EU AI strategy, and we'll then go to, to Maritje. These are initial statements, and we'll take it from there. Carlos, over to you, and thanks again for being here. I always thought from the very beginning in 2014 that an AI strategy for Europe would be something that would be able to differentiate us from other parts of the world. So the AI strategy of Europe has been very different from other parts. And I think that in a time that you need to differentiate ourselves from others, that was crucial in that journey. 
And so when uh, President Macron at the time invited me to uh, go to Paris and to help Cédric Villani on that strategy with a European flavor, it came to us at the time. And Cédric Villani, I think he's really a wonderful man. As you know, he's a Fields Medal, a mathematician and a politician. He came with these buzzword of AI for humanity. And I think that that describes so well Europe, right? That you're talking about technology, but the first thing that comes up is humanity. And so when you look at this triangle of technology, investment, and political choices, Europe has always leaned towards the political choices. And I think that's a, a very important for the future of Europe, and is actually the most crucial thing that we have ahead of us. You can say that Europe is investing less in terms of amounts, in terms of AI, that China is investing more, or the US. But at the end of the day, you know, the big choices that we ever had in terms of AI, they are not technology. They are not about what kind of technology. I think that that boat, that boat has sailed. I think that the, the choices that we ever had, they're purely political. And the big difficulty today is that uh, politicians uh, are not engineers, and engineers, or most of them, are not politicians. And so... When we look to AI, we really have two main choices to make as the world as a whole, but as a European, I feel that we have answered that call. The first is about direction. What do we want AI to be? What do we want AI to be in the future for our children? And the second is about the raw material, the raw material of AI, which is data. And so let's start on the first one. I think the first one, which is the direction that we want AI to take. In Europe, it was always very unique because I remember going to Japan with a French minister, going to visit a very uh, unique place with a robot, a robot that looked like a human being. And both of us looked and said, we don't want these in Europe. We don't want a robot that looks like a human being. We want something that actually complements us as human beings, someone that makes me smarter but I don't want that robot to replace me. I want that robot to help me. And I think that this idea of augmentation and complementarity is a very European one somehow, because we don't feel like that we want something to do what we do. We want something to make us smarter. And one of the worldwide experts on this subject, uh, a professor at the time at Carnegie Mellon that happens to be Portuguese, Manuela Veloso, she said to me, you know, in five years, I want my doctor to have artificial intelligence, but I don't want my doctor to be artificial intelligence. And I think that the strategy that we've put at the time was exactly about that. That was the center of the strategy. This idea that we want to be smarter, we want to AI to help us to be smarter. The second one is about AI and this tension that Yuval Harari speaks so well in between freedom and control, and that the pandemic came exactly to accelerate that tension in between the idea of freedom and control. And that's where we talk about surveillance. I think that for Europeans, it is very clear, and it's very clear from the strategy of the French government at the time to the European strategy in 2018, that this tension in between a state control 
and citizen empowerment, Europe would always be on the side of the citizen empowered or how to empower the citizen. And that is so true today because we're living through the pandemic and we feel that every day and we feel that in the way countries treat uh, and defend themselves from the pandemic from parts of the world where the government takes control and you don't know if they will take back that or not or if that control of the government will stay in Europe where people say look if we want a tracing app we will have to do it that voluntarily we have to do it as human beings to make that choice i cannot be imposed on myself that i have to have an app and this dichotomy in between health and privacy and being myself and the dignity of the human being is very important and the last one which was these of the data data choices and that are there's two things that i'm very proud that europe did during our tenure and is keeping on that track the first was about open access and open data in 2017 all the european governments around the table decided that until 2020 all scientific articles every paper that we produce in europe should be by default open access and open data so free to read instead of paying to read and that data by default would be open and that is as you see it in a pandemic right if you want to discover a vaccine if you want science to develop you need open data and you need open access and you saw that also in the united states i mean when the white house now decided that all articles in health or health matters will be open to the public so everybody is doing that and europe was at the forefront and of course i think that probably the the biggest step we made that everybody talks about is this idea of what data is and the gdpr gdpr was such a great example where suddenly nobody was talking about europe in the us and people started to say look i mean this gdpr is something that we should follow it was on cnn even on fox news you had tim cook coming to the parliament and saying look we're going to follow your rules and so this power of europe of influencing the world through data and the fact that we consider data as part of the human dignity that the three principles of gdpr was first the consent that i have to consent i have to give my consent to people using my data that i have the right to be forgotten and that i have the right to move my data very simple but very effective and i think that that has been somehow uh, transformational and uh, europe has taken the lead on that so i'm optimistic Thank you so much Carlos. That was really interesting and there was already a lot in there. I sometimes worry when it comes to AI that we in the sense of, you know, Europe and Brussels maybe overestimating the Brussels effect slightly, but that's something to discuss. But Carlos what you said also sparked a question in my mind that maybe I can directly give to Maritje and that is you spoke about a kind of European approach to AI and I think one questions that I have quite often is that is there a european approach that is different from a western approach basically are there differences i think it's really easy to to define differences between let's say um a chinese approach and what we think in europe but but it is harder to do so with regard to europe and the us 
you know, everything I hear and everything I read on paper when it comes to values-based, human-centric, citizen-first approach sounds like music to my ears. I think that that is the direction Europe should take. But, and this is a very serious but, I want to look at the, the gap between that promise and the reality. And I think there is no time for complacency. And in, in some ways, I think there's a sort of strange dynamic going on when it comes to embracing this notion of a super regulator as Europeans. Because, sure, the GDPR has been uh, created. We could all read the critical side notes about how it has actually turned out in practice over the past two years. One big missed opportunity, for example, is to not be much more specific about data protection and artificial intelligence. I think that was, for example, one point that should have been done more more clearly and should be in the future. But in general, after the GDPR, there has been a growing tendency to suggest that the best role and the strongest role for Europe is to be a super regulator. And I think if Europe cannot show one growth on the basis of the values that it propagates, we have a credibility problem and we have a scaling problem. Two, when I read the white paper on artificial intelligence, which I think by and large has a lot of good points, there is one big challenge when the commission explicitly states, we are not going to touch on AI in the military and defense context. Now, how does one square this with the promise of a more geopolitical European commission at the times we live in? So I think, sure, the promise of a values-based, human-centric, citizen-first model for Europe is great. The practice is clearly lagging behind. And as Europeans who want uh, this this values-based model to succeed, I think we need to be honest and look for solutions. The second point that I want to make is the following. It builds on what Ulrike said about, you know, is there a difference between a European model and a so-called Western model? As Carlos also sketched this notion that there is a very state-heavy model in China, a very market-heavy model in the United States, and then bottom-up citizen-first model in Europe, is becoming a little bit of a caricature in light of the role that the private sector plays in Western societies. So I will argue, and this is perhaps a provocative statement, but I want to actually invite discussion about it. So that's why I'm going to underline it with a little bit more strength for the sake of arguments. I would argue that the democracies of the world, led by the United States because of its technological advantage, but certainly followed by Europe, have completely dropped the ball when it comes to governing technologies and when it comes to developing a democratic governance model of technologies, including artificial intelligence. And instead, we see a privatized governance model taking hold in the United States and Europe all the same. And this is, I believe, creating a fundamental weakness in the international context, because if there is a conviction, which I hear a lot in Silicon Valley, that's very libertarian, and that is is assuming a sort of self-fulfilling, liberating prophecy or democratizing prophecy on the waves of technology, then I think we've seen all the incidents and evidence that that has not succeeded. So what I hope will be possible, but what I think is necessary at the most challenging time, is that the democracies of this world come together and develop a democratic rule of law-based governance model of AI and technology. And that can not only be transatlantic partners, but must include partners like India, even though there's a lot of challenges there for scale, Japan and countries like Mexico for truly global span. I fear that if we do not put democracy first and the rule of law first in governing technologies, not only in paper and in promise, but also in practice, that we will lose the competition for 
power, agency, and governance against authoritarian states and against private companies. Thank you, Marietje. That was absolutely fantastic. I was just wondering, Marietje, there was one point you talked about the privatized governance model. And I was just thinking, isn't that exactly where the US and Europe potentially diverge? That, I mean, it's not just Silicon Valley, but I would say a US or American approach to things more generally, that there is more, if you like, believe in the market or the private actor versus the state. Do you think like that's one of, that that's going to be one of the main differences in how Europe and the US will approach this or, or do you see other other challenges rather than that? No, it, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge more so because the United States has a lot of power through its industry. Mm -hmm. And so what the US does and not does not regulate for has much stronger ripple effects at the moment because it pertains to a number of companies that are used globally. On the other hand, the notion that there is no intervention or no, no regulation in the U.S. is not entirely true. For example, when it comes to export controls of certain surveillance and, and strategic technologies, there has been uh, executive action that has mandated uh, an intervention. There are 47 attorneys general investigating uh, Google on antitrust allegations um, there is now uh, a bill put forward to restrict the uh, export of surveillance and hacking as a service system. So I would say that perhaps later to the regulatory game, when the United States decides to take action, it can often do so more swiftly than Europe. Sure, we can always go back to the GDPR. We can also embrace our own antitrust legislation and, and the credibility and the force of competition law and, and uh, competition mandates. This is all very good. But as I mentioned, I, I really think that if we're on the defensive and all we can do is mention what is going well, we're overlooking the harsh competition that is going on for an integrated set of challenges around economic competition, strategic competition, and values competition. And in The heart of technologies, for example, AI, uh, as illustrated by your introduction as well, you know, on surveillance and the sort of spiral of gathering data, feeding it into artificial intelligence, then using it potentially for control and power and back again to gathering more data, analyzing it more sufficient, uh, sophisticatedly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is very hard in the case of technology to distill what is an economic interest per se, what is a strategic as in security interest per se, and what is a human rights question. It's all very much integrated. And therefore, I believe we need a rule of law based, or I call it democratic, a governance model of technology to really address these multiple points. And Europe, for all its strengths, has not even begun to develop a vision and, in fact, is, is sending statements to the world that it won't touch on certain issues like, for example, AI and, and defense, which I really, you know, fail to understand what the wisdom was behind that. So I believe that Europe's biggest fans should be its biggest critics, that the GDPR's biggest fans should be its biggest critics. And instead, I see this sort of wholesale embrace of being a super regulator, and I just don't think it will be enough. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, I'm absolutely with you on the importance of defense and, and security. Maybe Carlos wants to react to that. But first of all, Susan Morgan, please. Hi there. If I go back 10 years in my career, I had just at that point taken on being the first executive director of an organization called the Global Network Initiative, which was looking at the responsibility of technology companies to respect very explicitly human rights around free expression and privacy and the responsibilities that they had. It seems to me the conversation about AI and values 
is often less about human rights and more about ethics, which from my perspective, ethics are a lot more malleable, shall we say, than international human rights standards. So it seems to me that that is very advantageous for the companies to have an ethics-based debate about AI rather than a human rights-based debate. I had two two comments. The first one was on the point uh, very well raised by Marita in terms of defense and military spending in terms of AI. And here we, we have a political problem in Europe, which is that for a long time, there was no consensus in terms of the member states for us to touch in anything, even in research. I mean, I was responsible for the program of research, so 80 billion. And each time I would go to the parliament, I would be bombarded by questions to be sure that everything I would do would not touch defense or the military side. And so that was for some countries or some member states, something that one could not even put on the table. During the Juncker Commission, we launched the idea of a European defense fund. And I think that was pretty unique and nobody before had the courage to do it. And I remember uh, the then Minister of Defense of Germany, now President of the Commission, in a speech saying something very, very interesting, which was basically, look, the European Defense Fund is basically creating the seeds of some kind of military power for Europe, but we cannot say it. We cannot put the words, because if we put the words, then we cannot do it. And so I understand from the perspective now of the person who worked in the commission that all the public servants that wrote that paper, in their minds, I mean, they just don't even go there. Just to explain, but the European Defence Fund and the proposal that was on the table at the time had $5 billion for research, including AI and including everything related to robotics, but in a separate way. So it had to be on totally separate from the research program, from the discussions of the AI. But I think that there was something there. I don't know if that would be approved by the, the parliament, and we will wait for that on the multi-annual framework and the results of that discussion. The second point that Susan put in very well asked about the point of human rights and ethics. I was responsible for the group of ethics of the European Commission, and uh, I asked them at the time to look into the ethics of AI. And of course, part of it, there was discussions on the side of the human rights. But the human rights for us Europeans, at least for, for me at the time, that was for me so clear to me that the European way of looking at it would respect human rights. So it was something that I didn't even have to state. And I was more worried about looking into the ethics, looking into the broader view. But I take your point and your criticism that we should have talked more about human rights in terms of AI and what are the effects of AI or the potential negative effects in terms of human rights. And we see it every day in other parts of the world. Thank you. Um, I think you made an extremely important point, Carlos, by emphasizing the differences in view by different EU member states. And this is really something that, yeah, the EU needs to work on. There are 27 member states and, and I've been looking into this to, to some extent and you can really see how there is a full range of, of different approaches when it comes to, to AI, specifically when it comes to the question of how geopolitical AI should be seen. 
we can't pretend that there is unanimity within the EU and now it's only a question of how to work with the US or how to work with other players such as India and Australia that were that were mentioned. Um, so I think that's that's something that where, where the EU as an organization can also play a very important role of coordination. Let me just weigh in a little bit on whether I believe that the Brussels effect is enough. It certainly is not enough, but I think it does help when the Europeans know that they do have control and influence over the regulatory framework within which the competition over AI future is fought. I hope that I rather introduce a sense of confidence and ambition that any of the efforts made within the EU towards greater investments in the AI will not be wasted, since the playing field will be not out of control of the Europeans, but something that we can influence. But I've always said that the Brussels effect makes us the regulatory superpower in many ways, and we can be a referee on the field, but we also need to get on the field. And on the field, we need to play both offense and defense. And if we think about the offense, for instance, I think there it's absolutely right that we need to be conscious of the competition that is taking place and look at the investments that China has made, look at the investment that the United States have made, And I think the EU can never lead uh, or even prevail in the, the fight over the future of the AI if we do not support our strategies with the, for instance, very conscious talent strategy. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity right now when the United States is tightening its immigration policies that we would be actively inviting the world's innovative talent and diversify and bolster our talent pool to develop the, the AI future for the EU. We need to invest in our universities. We need to invest in the capital markets so that we can fund those innovations. So there's a lot of work to be done. But what I do hope is that our understanding that we are not at the mercy of the rules of the game that we cannot influence will give us the further impetus to make those investments. Um, Raquel is next. My name is Raquel Vashpintu. I teach international relations and I'm now a consultant with the Gulbenkian Foundation. So I had uh, two comments. First one was to relating the national uh, element that Carlos also mentioned in the sense of this is a debate that needs also to be taken take into account the illiberal democracies that are now thriving or at least uh, being consolidated within the EU. And I think that in that sense, we sometimes talk a lot about the EU as the source of power, but there is still much to be done at the national level. And in that sense, and using this uh, new dimension, particularly in terms of the scariest part, which is the security and the control of your population, And I think in that sense, we have a huge challenge regarding either Hungary or Poland or other countries. So th that would be my, my first comment. So we cannot expect Brussels to deliver many things in which sometimes the national uh, element steps in. The second one was to, regarding a comment, I would like to look at the strategic element. I think it was Marita that mentioned the India approach or a closer relationship with other liberal democracies within the world, uh, looking beyond the non-Western world or the non-European world, if you would like to put it. What can we do in terms of being a greater source of attraction? I'm thinking about Africa, in which China is clearly leading the competition and exporting a lot of programs through 
Huawei, safe cities, smart cities, and so forth, but also Latin America and so forth. So in that sense, I would like to ask uh, Marita to give us a bit more on how we could do this. Thank you very much, Raquel. Very interesting point about the illiberal democracies in, in Europe as well. Um, Janka, and then we'll go back to Mariti and Carlos. I was in a hearing yesterday in the German Bundestag, and there was a lot of conversation about kind of uh, sanctions and whether the U.S. is doing what it's doing at the moment. Is that good or is that bad for Europe? So, Mariti, you made a really interesting point saying when the U.S. decides to act, it actually has punch. It actually then does something. And, and that's very true for the surveillance tech area with regard to China. So um, the question for me is, do we need to separate our conversation about sanctions a bit? Do we need to be in favor of, for example, human rights-based sanctions uh, in surveillance tech? And do we need to kind of strip the sanctions debate a bit apart to, to give that little evil hanging, the evilness of the sanctions tool, um, put that aside, and you look at the usefulness it can have also for Europe in terms of furthering um, a, a human rights agenda in that specific surveillance um, respect. And the second quote is the India part. I'm an Asia scholar and China scholar in particular. So obviously, every time someone talks about diversifying away from China, we have to solve the China question. The India one is like the default option. Similar size, you can do this. And then it just kind of is the easy way out. Yes, making it very difficult in the data front for us to actually be a good partner. So what do you think are the prospects of this? And will the EU be actually willing to give up one of its like core themes of saying we only negotiate comprehensive trade agreements? We don't do anything below that level. And actually look at India in that sector and say, well, maybe a full FDA will be really difficult in the short term, but maybe we can get an arrangement on data because that's so important for us at the moment. Is there thinking on that going on? A few points. Absolutely echoing what Anu said about attracting talent. It's remarkable how many opportunities Europe has to for quality of life and for the values-based approach attract people, but there really has to be a concerted effort to do so. Even at universities, not just companies, um, it is much easier for Europeans to go to America than the other way around. I can say from experience, and it, it, you know, it really was not the preferred path from that sense. Sure, the window opens because the door closes in the United States, but we really also have to ask ourselves, not just now, but throughout, what do we offer people? Why is it harder for people to stay here? Even European talents that have built companies tend to flock to the US. It has a lot to do with um, access to capital, for example, ease of of doing business uh, across borders. And that brings me to the promise of the single market, which has always been an anchor of the EU and even its its biggest critics would probably start hammering away at the single market last on their list because it really has obviously brought so many benefits. And there's a, an acute need also illustrated by the Huawei example that was mentioned to be clear about what the relation is between national security concerns and the single market. And the Huawei case already confronted Europeans with, with that. But the bigger discussion that I mentioned in my introduction with regard to the geopolitical dimension, the power competition, it makes it inevitable to touch on. So, of course, I understand what Carlos said, that it's not, you know, that the, the European Commission is operating on a mandate by the member states and that member states are increasingly also fueled by illiberal leaders, by a more nationalist perspectives. But there's also a reality check needed. And I think we at ECFR, those of us who can speak freely, so to say, should also point to the need to be more ambitious. And also, I would simply say more realistic 
Uh, and I would indeed say that the human rights aspect are now uniquely in the hands of the Europeans. The United States has completely dropped the ball, has become incredibly ineffective One, because of a credibility problem. Two, because of an ambition problem of this administration. So there are many opportunities where the U.S. takes a step back, not just in in visa and immigration, but also in this global leadership role. And and I warmly encourage the European Commission and European leaders to to go in that direction. On India, uh, I agree things are not easy from both sides. But in retrospect, it strikes me how little attention there was for the role of India in Brussels. So I think uh, where there is a focus and an ambition, we can find a way. And I would certainly say that comprehensive trade agreements only, and especially in the case of India, do not help our interests. Here again, if we put it in the economic box, right, the question of working with India on uh, data-related issues, we may have one set of options, including a trade agreement. But if we put it more in the geopolitical and the um, uh, defense and security box, that may open up new avenues. And I, I really think that there is a lot of aspects that are that are very much of um, defense and security concern that relate to apps, data gathering, um, uh, you know, a broad democratic alliance with countries like India, but not only India. So a broader coalition. Of, of democratic countries, think of it maybe like a D20, you know, the biggest democracies that are going to focus on data governance. Uh, and then lastly, when it comes to questions of, of sanctions, leadership in Europe, sort of jumping to a, to a slightly different discussion, which I hope we will have time for in the future, is this whole question of how do we create accountability in the digital realm after cyber attacks, after data breaches, uh, in the context of hybrid conflict. And there, I do believe that there's a huge accountability gap that needs to be closed with some kind of uh, attribution tribunal, with some kind of set of measures that Europeans have begun to talk about, the sanctions question. Uh, But it's one tool in a broader foreign policy and security toolbox. And I would say that perhaps in thinking in terms of justice and accountability, uh, we can overcome some of the hurdles that we typically see in the national security context, but that would serve uh, a few of the same purposes, namely deterring uh, adverse powers and uh, beginning to create some kind of accountability where there is very little at this point in time when it comes to cyber attacks and and data breaches. Thank you, Maritje. Carlos? So um, I I will go very quickly also on to the the three points. First one on talent uh, from Anu. Um, I really think that we have a fantastic opportunity in Europe to attract talent and to get the best. And in the five years, I can tell you that after Brexit and uh, after the election of Donald Trump, I would got more. I got more phone calls from people in the U.S. that are researchers in asking me how can I go to Europe and from the U.K. especially to join our European Research Council than I had before. So I basically felt it myself that we were for the first time in a long time in our history, attracting talent. And I think that we can do that in in a much and better way by creating not only a research council that we have, but also the one that we created at the time, and now it's developing the European Innovation Council. As Raquel was saying, we have our own challenges internally in countries like Hungary and Poland. And for that, I think that We have to be very, I would say, very realistic, as Maricha was saying. 
we have very strong rules in terms of deficit of debt, all the macroeconomic rules, but we have very weak rules in terms of human rights, values, rule of law for our European member states. If you want to be a member of the club, you have to respect that. If not, you're not a member of the club. And I think that Europe, and rightly so, people were people in the South, they were taken up this crisis in the 2008. People suffer, there was austerity. But then they see that people in some countries, they can have these illiberal governments that decide whatever they want, that break the rule of law, and nothing happens. And so that's something that we really have, have to change. And finally, on the data point of India that Yanka made, I think that is exactly one of the things that uh, my former colleague and now Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan has been trying to do is to create agreements on data. And, uh, and I remember when we did the trade agreement with Japan, at the time we created the biggest area in the world for data transfer in between Japan and the European Union. And I think that if Again, the the member states allow us to do that at the European level. That would be crucial to do these deals just on data because they will be crucial for our future. So I would uh, definitely be one of those that would defend that kind of deals that are not just a typical comprehensive trade agreement, of course. That was Marite Schake and Carlos Moedas at ECFR's 2020 Council Meeting. Now, normally at the end of each podcast, we have the bookshelf section where our invitees recommend books that they are reading. But we didn't ask Carlos or Marite to recommend something. So instead, I would like to point you to ECFR's summer reading list, which we published on our website www.ecfr.eu. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, give us a like or five stars on whatever platform you are using. But for now, it is goodbye from my side. Next week, your usual host, Mark Leonard, will be back. Thank you for listening. The editor of this week's podcast is Marlene Riedel.